welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. In this episode, we will look at the influence of the music that was born and bred in the USA, that purely American form of art, jazz, and its impact on popular music of the 70s. But first, thank you to all the new and returning listeners, and thanks to the new and returning patrons. If you want to kick in some cash and keep the ads away, you can do that for as little as $1 a month, or you can make whatever one-time donation suits your budget. Just go to ftr70.com, click on any episode, and click on the Patreon link. If you can't do that, just spreading the word to someone who you think might like the show, that's great too. To be clear, not one of the songs that I will be highlighting in this episode is jazz. So if any jazz purists are out there listening, be advised that this is not what is going to be happening with this episode. We won't be engaging in any debates about Miles Davis and Bitches Brew today, so we will not be discussing what is and what is not jazz. What this will be is an attempt to better understand the way that jazz influenced popular music, and maybe also come to some understanding about why jazz could not simply be a commercial success on par with other genres of music in the 70s. It seems as if the genre that is so embedded in the history of America would hold a more exalted status, but that has not been the case, at least not since rock and roll took hold. As a commercial art form, jazz already was in a bit of trouble when the 70s began. It would be too simple to say that its decline in popularity was because so many of the jazz legends died in the 70s. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Gene Krupa, Charlie Mingus, Stan Kenton, the list goes on. All died in the 70s, and that is significant, but there has to be more to it than that. Noted jazz critic and author of numerous articles and books on jazz, Gary Giddon wrote in an in-depth assessment of the state of 70s jazz in a 1979 article for the Village Voice that between the mid-60s and mid-70s, musicians were rejecting even being associated with jazz. Herbie Hancock, who played keyboards for Miles Davis in the 60s, said this about jazz in the 60s. The jazz of the 60s was complicated atonal and difficult, if not impossible to sing. There was no way to participate in it as there was in rock. Rock was popular because it was easy. You could dance to rock, but not to jazz of the period. Jazz did evoke a certain feeling, but it was hard to pinpoint it in those dense sound clusters and complex rhythms. And so people walked away with a feeling, but not with the remembrance. They had nothing to touch. Was it really too hard to be a fan of jazz? Maybe so. Another jazz musician, Paul Mitchell, said in 1977, when he was 45 years old, that jazz lost touch with the common music fan. I quote, Musicians started getting a little far from things that the layman could understand. For a while, jazz musicians stopped entertaining. Another jazz musician named Russell Bronca also had something to say about this in 1977. He played for a jazz band called the Neo-Bop Crisis Committee, but he could not make enough money as a jazz man alone, so he had to get a day job at a factory. He said, It seems that we, meaning Americans, 
are losing the capacity to be absorbed in things like literature, art, or music. We're losing the capacity to deeply reflect on what is important. I'm not sure if we lost the capacity, the desire, or if it was a combination of the two. Giddens said in that Village Voice article that jazz was, quote, a challenge to the listener and a risk to the performer. So for many Americans to accept jazz, it had to feel more familiar and not require too much because they did not want to be challenged. Herbie Hancock suggests that rock music invited participation while jazz invited reflection. In the 70s, rock music could get away with doing both of those things. In the way that music critics took classical music and jazz music seriously at one time, they began to take rock music seriously. Rock became the serious music fans' genre. Some might argue to the point of pretension in that rock critics liked to write think pieces about what was and what was not rock, just like we saw with jazz. So some musicians turned their love of jazz and or their jazz training into rock or pop music, while some just wanted to evoke the vibe, because jazz also suggests freedom. The very essence of jazz is freedom, improvisation. But they are also making rock or pop music because they want to make some money. In 1977, the Atlanta Cool Jazz Festival featured not one jazz artist. It was soul music and not jazz because the promoter for the festival said the economics of jazz are limited. And if it really was a jazz festival, we would play to a mostly empty stadium. So it is within this environment that blood, sweat, and tears took to the stage at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas for six shows in three nights in 1969. All of the shows sold out, and that is what blood, sweat, and tears were accused of being by the underground rock press sellouts. Blood, Sweat, and Tears believed that they had unlocked a formula to commercial success by combining rock vocals for the young folks with David Clayton Thomas taking the lead and the jazz arrangements for the older folks. It seemed to work for them when, as the first rock band to play the strip, they broke attendance records set by Frank Sinatra with this horns-forward style of jazz. If you ask the band how they classified their music, They borrowed a phrase from another jazz rock band called The Flag and said it is American music. Lou Soloff, a trumpet player who went to Juilliard, was with the band and he said this to the critic, Robert Hilburn, in 1970 about playing in a jazz rock band. Even though I might feel like playing with a pure jazz group at times, I know I'm better playing here than I would with any other group. The combination of rock, jazz, and classical makes each of us do better than if we had stayed in our so-called areas. It makes us grow. Clayton Thomas wrote Spinning Wheel two years before he joined the band, but he couldn't get anyone to record the record in his native Canada. He told Carl Weiser of Song Facts that the song was rejected for being too jazzy and therefore too hard to sell. It was the perfect song for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In fact, Clayton Thomas said, that without him, it was just a jazz band. But he brought in this R&B and this soul to make it more of a rock band. Al Cooper actually created the band, and he did so with this vision of it being a rock band, but everybody else saw it as a jazz band. With Clayton Thomas, it was both. The song Spinning Wheel does not require too much intellectually, but it's not completely vacuous either. 
It's a song about letting your troubles go and maybe not doing what you were supposed to do. Did you find your directing sign on the straight and narrow highway? Would you mind a reflecting sign? It does all this with allusions to the 60s psychedelic movement and with the horns forward jazz that Blood, Sweat, and Tears is noted for. This is a bit of Spinning Wheel. Grammy winner for arrangement from the Grammy winning album of the year, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Spinning Wheel is one of the biggest hits of 1969, a year littered with big hits. So that tells you a little something about the popularity of the song. But the fall is going to come very quickly for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and it's not because of jazz. It's because of Cold War politics. Yes, some critics did think that the band did not write enough original material and that they relied too much on cover songs. Clayton Thomas said that he left the band for three years in 1972 because the touring was too much. While he was getting songwriting royalties, most guys in the band only made money when they toured, and so they toured. But it was one specific tour that really was the beginning of the end for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. It was the summer of 1970, and the Cold War is still hot, and the band went on a tour of communist countries, Poland and Romania and Yugoslavia, after the United States State Department offered the Canadian Clayton Thomas permanent residency in the United States if he would do this tour. Now, this was an attractive offer for him because in his younger days, he had spent some time in prison. He said when he returned from the tour... We went over there with the idea of just how much so-called communist fascism is American propaganda. And I found out that the propaganda is pretty damn close to the truth. It's scary. That the band would be surprised at the censorship and the strong-arm tactics of communist countries and at being told to play more jazz and less, quote, rhythm because they were inciting this so-called rioting, seriously, blood, sweat, and tears inciting rioting, 
Well, all of this seems a little bit naive on the part of the band. It really made no matter to fans and to journalists that they had protested Vietnam and they'd played a concert at Kent State after the May 4th, 1970 shootings. They were viewed as sellouts by the likes of anti-war activists like Abby Hoffman for working on behalf of the federal government and the Nixon administration. I don't know. Uh, Maybe we can get to the bottom of all of this when, if, the documentary about the tour is released. It was announced in November 2020 that the documentary, at least with the, the working title, I don't know what, what, what it will end up with, What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears, is going to offer, I quote, humor and fresh insight into this strange, never-before-told story of a tangle with the Nixon administration, a controversial tour behind the Iron Curtain that put them in the crossfire of a polarized America. I hope that that documentary actually comes out because I want to watch that. Well, jazz rock went on without blood, sweat, and tears. Santana made this journey into jazz in the 70s. Uh, In fact, a, a bit more jazz than rock, and it kept Santana's music largely off the Billboard Hot 100. Traffic infused some jazz into albums like uh, The Low Spark of High-Heeled Boys. And then there is the uh, band formerly known as the Chicago Transit Authority. Chicago made and still makes, if you go to their website, a very clear distinction between their sound and that of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They have maintained all along that they are a rock band with horns. I'm not sure that you can even shoehorn Chicago into a genre, especially the 70s version of Chicago. The 80s version of Chicago, if that was your introduction to Chicago, you really weren't getting just how experimental this band really was. Uh, The 80s Chicago, very heavy on easy listening, soft pop, uh, you know, songs like Hard to Say I'm Sorry. The 70s version of Chicago was not afraid to be a little political. When they played Carnegie Hall in 1971, they played a song for Richard and his friends. Yes, that Richard. It was a plea for Richard Nixon to just go away, which he in fact did three years later. The song Dialogue from Chicago 5 in 1972 features a dialogue between Peter Cetera and Terry Kaff with Cetera as this kind of apathetic college student and Kaff as an activist. It goes like this, Terry, are you optimistic about the way things are going? And then Cetera says, no, I never think of it at all. Terry, don't you ever worry when you see what's going down? Cetera, well, I try to mind my business. That is no business at all. Terry, when it's time to function as a feeling human being, Will your Bachelor of Arts help you get by? Cetera, I hope to study further a few more years or so. I also hope to keep a steady high. Some of Chicago's lyrics were a little cryptic, like in 25 or 6 to 4, but they could also record songs which were much more straightforward lyrically that still felt jazz-inspired. This rock band with horns made good use of those horns on songs like this one. This is a bit of Saturday in the Park. (laughs) 
Saturday in the Park from Chicago 5 in 1972. It made it to number three on the Hot 100. Okay, I'm not a musicologist, so I'm just going to say what I'm thinking here. Uh, If there are musicologists listening, hey, thanks. But (laughs) this is what I think. It's not just the horns that feel kind of jazzy in this one. Robert Lamb is singing the lead vocals, but it's his piano playing to me. It reminds me a little bit of some of the jazzier music from Ray Charles. In 1962, 12-year-old Stevie Wonder released an instrumental album with him on the organ and the harmonica, and that's called The Jazz Soul of Little Stevie. He never lost that soul. One of his greatest musical influences is Duke Ellington, one of the fathers of big band jazz. In 1976, Stevie released the album Songs in the Key of Life. This is the third in his string of three career-defining albums, beginning with Intervisions in 1972, Fulfilling This's first finale in 1974, and now The Songs of Key of Life. In this one, Motown founder Barry Gordy said that Stevie took his life experiences and he put them all into this album and it worked. So it is really fitting that Stevie would have the quintessential jazz rock fusion song, Contusion, on this album. And it's equally fitting that he would include an R&B tribute to Duke Ellington with deep, deep jazz roots. There is a fabulous video from Vox, which I have linked to in my show notes in the sources section, in which Jacob Collier breaks down exactly how Stevie honors Ellington and Sir Duke. Okay, so go watch the video. I'll tell you what I hear and just a little bit of what Collier said. We can hear it in the horns, but if we listen closely, we can also hear it in the drums, which calls to mind, take the A train. I didn't realize that until Collier pointed out, damn, he is right. You can hear Take the A-Train in Sir Duke. Again, I'm not a musician and I'm not a musicologist. I'm a historian. But I encourage you to go and check out that video if you want more of the details. But what I can tell you is that the way Stevie played the notes on the chromatic scale, that I do know a little something about. That is, those are the notes that are right next to each other on the keyboard or on the piano. That is similar to the way they are played in jazz. So when he starts listing off these jazz greats, uh, here's Basie and Miller, Satchmo, and the king of all, Sir Duke, and with a voice like Ella's ringing out, there's no way a band can lose, we know exactly what he's doing. He is making one of the ultimate tributes to jazz. Listen for it here. This is a bit of Sir Duke. And now there's no way the band can lose You can feel it 
let you in on a secret. I've got a sticky note here on my uh, my recording equipment that tells me to not sing because it's hard not to when you hear that in your ears. And I get these um, emails all the time about doing video podcasts. You don't want that because you're going to see some very bad chair dancing. From the 1976 album, Sounds in the Key of Life, released as a single in 1977, It went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on May 21st, and it hung out there for about three weeks until it was knocked out by I'm Your Boogeyman by KC and the Sunshine Band. A few weeks after that, Stevie said, I knew the title from the beginning, but wanted it to be about the musicians who did something for us. So soon they are forgotten. I wanted to show my appreciation. Four months after, Sir Duke went to number one. Steely Dan released the album Asia. This is a decade after Walter Becker and Donald Fagan met while students at Bard College, about 90 miles north of New York City. They discovered that they both liked jazz, and the beat poets like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. They would name their band after a steel dildo mentioned in a book by another beat, Naked Lunch, by William Burroughs. Their love of jazz is the basis of many of their songs, but they resisted labeling it jazz rock or jazz fusion. Becker said, we played rock and roll, but we swing when we play. We want that ongoing flow, that lightness, that forward rush of jazz. Their lyrics are a lot more complex, and some might even say cryptic, than the typical rock songs of the 1970s. Michael Duffy, in his 1977 review of Asia for Rolling Stone, wrote that the lyrics are as pleasantly obtuse and cynical as ever. That seems perfect for Steely Dan. The musical arrangements on Asia were polished, which has always left Steely Dan open to criticism for being too smooth and polished for rock. It's not exactly jazz either. The essence of jazz is improv, as I've said, But in rock, the arrangements are carefully planned out. But here's the thing. Becker and Fagan did that. They did both of those things. They wrote both the words and the music of their songs, but they left room for soloists to do their thing and to improv. Have you ever dreamed of being a musician? Have you ever dreamed of singing in a band? That's the basis for Deacon Blues. This is a song about a midlife crisis. It's about a discontented suburbanite who thinks if the University of Alabama can be the Crimson Tide, he should be able to have a nickname like Deacon Blues. Or, as Fagan puts it, the nerds and losers should be entitled to a grandiose name as well. Crimson Tide fans, I have some bad news for you if you think that this song is doing anything other than poking some fun at the name Crimson Tide. Becker said Crimson Tide didn't mean anything to us except the exaggerated grandiosity that's bestowed on winners. True to their roots, Becker and Fagan first conceived of this song with a big band arrangement. They then crafted the song by layering on the rhythm tracks, the vocals, and the horns, which includes Tom Scott on the sax. 
Becker and Fagan told him that they wanted this tight, romantic, and I quote, Duke Ellington cloud feel. It's the backdrop for a broken dream. It's not the way Duffy interpreted it in his Rolling Stone interview about a guy who was resigned to life as a musician in L.A. who crawls like a viper through these suburban streets. No, it's not that. Walter Becker said, our wannabe musician in Deacon Blues is a triple L loser, an LLL loser. It's not so much about a guy who achieves his dream, but about a broken dream of a broken man living his broken life. Deacon Blues, a top 20 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1978. That's the same year that another melancholy song about a discontented life was released. I know the iconic saxophone riff and that smooth jazz exterior of Baker Street might give you this life is free and easy vibe. Dare I say Yacht Rock? No, I do not say Yacht Rock, not going there, and I definitely am not going there with Baker Street. Let's examine the lyrics written by Jerry Rafferty, also the singer of this song and the co-writer of another 70s classic, Stuck in the Middle with You, which he wrote when he was part of Steeler's Wheel. That's the band he had with his childhood friend, Joe Egan. Well, another crazy day. You'll drink the night away and forget about everything. This city desert makes you feel so cold. It's got so many people, but it's got no soul. 
It's taken you so long to find out you were wrong when you thought it held everything. The first important thing to know is that Rafferty was a severe alcoholic, something that only got worse for him as time went on. He also suffered from bipolar disorder and depression, so according to his daughter Martha, his drinking was connected to his mental health. It is his addiction to alcohol that unfortunately killed him at the age of 63 in 2011. So you listen to these lyrics with that knowledge, and it it does hit a bit different. Add in that he had some legal issues with his Steelers Wheel contract that did not permit him to record any solo work between 1975 and 1978, and it's really no coincidence that it's within that three-year span that he wrote Baker Street. And now that you know that, when you hear this, he's got his dream about buying some land. He's going to give up the booze and the one-night stands, and then he'll settle down in some quiet little town and forget about everything. But you know he'll always keep moving. You know he's never going to stop moving because he's rolling. He's the rolling stone. When you hear that, you better understand the story that Jerry Rafferty is trying to tell. In 1978, he gave an interview to Rolling Stone, and he described his feelings about stepping away from Steeler's Wheel, saying the band was, quote, in shambles, and it was time to stop the whole fucking farce. I'd got married, had a child, I was 24, and one day it was like I'd been living in a dream for six or eight years And suddenly I woke up. It was a pretty scary kind of feeling. Perhaps I was on the edge of a nervous breakdown. I just had to get away, away from groups, managers, record companies, the whole thing. When asked the persistent theme of his music, he replied without hesitation, alienation. It was during this time after spending a lot of time at his friend's house on Baker Street in London, that he wrote this song.
a more iconic saxophone riff than that one. That's Raphael Ravenscott on the sax. There's some debate about whether Rafferty or Ravenscott came up with that, but the prevailing view seems to be that it was Rafferty. Rafferty said that he tried uh, the guitar and the piano for that riff instead of the saxophone, but settled on the sax because it evoked the feeling that he wanted. He The feeling he wanted was the jazz period of New York City, and I think by that he means the jazz period of the 1920s. There may have also been some shenanigans with the record companies that kept Baker Street at number two for six, count them, six weeks, unable somehow to knock Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb out of the number one slot on the Billboard Hot 100. The legend is that Baker Street actually had made it to number one And Casey Kasem was even ready to count it down that way on American Top 40. But RCA, Andy Gibbs' record label, allegedly threatened to not let him take part in some sort of billboard show if Shadow Dancing was not still number one. That seems a little suspect to me, but nonetheless, Baker Street remains one of the more famous all-time number twos. So... When Stevie Wonder was discussing his tribute to the jazz greats in Sir Duke, he said, they gave us something that is supposed to be forever. And so it is. Jazz is embedded not just in a music history, but in American history, our national history too. It does what great music can and should do, which is reflect the times as well as guide us forward. It did that in the 1920s, and it makes sense that it would also do that in some way in the 1970s, a time when we needed some inner reflection and perhaps, most of all, some good music. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. You can find all of my sources on ftr70.com. If you like what you hear, hey, please tell someone. You can also follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now, everyone.